Welcome to the River Bluff Church Sermon Podcast. We hope you enjoy this sermon from Lead Pastor Joe Still. And for more information about us, please visit riverbluff.org. We are truly living in a mess. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to have figured that out. You don't need to do anything other than look around to see it. And that's what I want to kind of think about today is how do our hearts, how do hearts that are sorrowing, how do hearts that are harried, uh, just agitated, stirred up, how do our harried hearts find healing in Jesus? And so I want to talk about that today. And to do that, I want us to look um, at an event from the life of Jesus and the lives of his earthly friends, his disciples. It was a moment in his life that was really starting to become a mess for followers of Jesus in that day. Now, days before that, that this journey began, they, they were approaching Jerusalem. And on their approach to Jerusalem, they're their excitement had begun to increase, only to crash on the night that we're going to read about uh, some verses about that event in John 14. So if you want to get your Bibles open to John 14, as you're finding your way there, just want to remind you of what preceded the events of what we're about to read. When Jesus was approaching Jerusalem, he stopped outside the city in a little village, and there he joined in a funeral. There was mourning going on for Lazarus who had died. And Jesus came and stepped into that and made a way. He raised Lazarus from the dead. And oh my goodness, Jesus' disciples, they were, they were on an all-time high at that event. And Jesus' fame grew and it, it was just incredible. And then a short time after that, Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, and the crowds went ecstatic. They were shouting their hopes, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You could read about that in in John chapter 12. They they thought, this is it. He's going to establish his kingdom. We're going to get prominent roles in his administration. It's going to be great. But then shortly later, As Jesus begins to teach, once again, he began talking about his death. In John chapter 12, verse 24, it's recorded Jesus saying, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. And then Jesus starts talking about his own death, predicting his death. Then they get to the celebration of the Passover and Jesus tells them to go into this upper room and to prepare the meal there and Jesus began to talk with them about being portrayed betrayed and he began talking to them about his impending death and those thoughts are filling the minds of the disciples and they're distracted and life is becoming messier and they begin having thoughts like what if what if Jesus dies What if this is the end of all that we've come to believe over these three and a half years? What if this is it? Some of you may know the name Shel Silverstein. He was an author 
of children's literature, and he wrote a little work called What If? I want to read this, this poem to you. It's for children. It's addressing their fears, and it goes like this. Last night, while I lay thinking here, some what-ifs crawled inside my ear and pranced and partied all night long and sang their same old what-if song. What if they closed the swimming pool? What if I end up dumb in school? What if I get beat up? What if there's poison in my cup? What if I start to cry? What if I just get sick and die? What if I flunk that test? Or what if green hair grows on my chest? What if nobody likes me? What if a lightning bolt strikes me? What if I don't get taller? Nobody say anything there. What if I don't get taller? What if my head starts getting smaller? What if the fish won't bite? What if the wind tears up my kite? What if they start a war? What if my parents get a divorce? What if the bus is late? What if my teeth don't grow in straight? What if I tear my pants? What if I never learn to dance? Everything seems well until the nighttime what-ifs strike again. Well, I believe truthfully all of us have had our case of what-ifs. I think this last year that we've lived through has been... I know it's been the greatest what-if year of my life and pretty much everyone else that I, I talk to. People wondering, what if I lose my job? What if, what if I lose my home? What if, what if something happens to my family? What if I get this virus? What if the economy gets worse? What if the vaccine doesn't work? What if, what if, what if? You know, this isn't going to come up on your screen. You can look it up later. In Ephesians chapter 6, Paul talks about the spiritual realm, and the battle that we're in. And there he says this. He says, the rulers, the powers, the world forces of this darkness, the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. He he mentions all of those. And I don't know what your theology is, but my, my theology has room for there being demons, that they're real, that they exist, that they're active in our day, and they seek to do God's people harm through things like deception and temptation and accusation. And I believe there's an actual hierarchical structure, kind of like a military. That's what Paul was talking about in Ephesians 6. And I'm convinced that one of those rulers, one of those powers in those dark places of wickedness, I believe one of them has the name of what if. We get what if to death. I believe he's been working overtime. He's at work that night that we're about to read about, I believe, in John 14. He's working on the hearts of of Jesus' friends, the disciples. And here's what we need to come to understand, very misunderstood, and that's how he works in hearts that face the what-ifs, how he works in hearts when they're they're in a mess, how, how Jesus heals harried hearts, troubled hearts. How we can find a place in the capable arms of Father God, powerful and loving. Jesus shows us how. And he does it on the night before he was betrayed, on the night before he was crucified. And we read about it in John 14. So if you've made your way there in your Bibles, we're going to read verses 1 through 6. Jesus said to his disciples, let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. 
If it were not so, I would have told you, excuse me, if it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way where I am going. And Thomas said, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This is the word of the Lord. Now you might say, how is this that Jesus is speaking about for troubled hearts, harried hearts, let not your hearts be troubled. And there are a few principles uh, in this passage of Scripture, these six verses, that I, wanna, I want us to talk about and think about uh, today. One of those, the first of those, is something that's true for those who are in Jesus, and it's this. In Jesus, harried hearts can find control. Messy lives desperately need Control Lives living in a, a world that's a mess need some control around them. And I want you to notice something as this chapter begins. It begins with a commandment. It's, it's in, the, in the original language, it's in an imperative tense. Let not your hearts be troubled, Jesus says. It, it's this present imperative. It's a commandment. And here's the idea. It's not to, to, to say don't ever start worrying. It's not to say don't ever start being troubled. The idea here is that Jesus is telling them to put a stop to something that's already going on. He knows their hearts are already troubled. He says, I know you're, this is a mess, but in the midst of the mess, stop being troubled. Get, get a grip. That's, that's the idea here. It's, a, it's an imperative. Now, let me unpack that word troubled for, for just a second. Greek scholar Kenneth Wiest, he translates this verse this way. Let not your heart continue to be agitated. Now that, that word that is translated here by Wiest as agitated in, in ESV as troubled. We've, it's, if you've read the Gospel of John, you've seen it multiple times. In the original language, it's the, the Greek word terasso. And in other places, like in, in John chapter 5, you can read about an event from Jesus' life and ministry when Jesus goes to the pool of Bethesda. And there he finds this man who was lame from birth, who is laying beside this pool. And the Bible tells us that he is waiting for the moving of the water. He's waiting for the stirring of the water. He's waiting for the agitation of the water. And that word that's used there is the word terrasso, to get stirred up. In John chapter 12, verse 27, Jesus says to his disciples, Now is my soul troubled. Terrazzo, it's stirred up, it's agitated. And then Jesus in chapter 14 tells his disciples, let not your hearts be terrasso. Don't let them be continually agitated, stirred up, troubled. And that's a command. Now, follow me for just a minute. Since, since this is a command, it means that even in a mess, we can find some control to live in, to appropriate. And here's a principle I pray that you never, ever forget. Anytime that God gives a command, he will always give you the grace to keep that command. 
Your good, good father would never give you a command that you can't keep. He would never say, for instance, you know, go jump over the moon because it's impossible for you to do something like that. If God ever gives you a command, he will give you a built-in capacity, the grace to follow through and do it because his grace is always sufficient. So if Jesus is saying to, to the disciples, man, get a grip, then a grip can be gotten. Something can be, be handled. And the point is simple. As a Christian, you and I have the ability to control our thought life. Now, in John chapter 14, verse 1, Jesus talks about your, your heart. Don't let it be troubled. Your heart here is your mind. Don't let your mind run away from you. And there's tons of scripture that, that talk about this. Here's a random sampling. Uh, Paul writes to the church at Corinth in 2 Corinthians 10. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised up against the knowledge of God. We take every thought captive to obey Christ. Paul writing to the church at Rome in Romans chapter 12 tells us, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by renewing what? Your mind. One more. First Peter chapter 1 says this, Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind. Have you ever read that? What on earth does it mean to gird up the loins of your mind? Well, that was King James' way of basically saying, prepare your minds for action. Be sober-minded. It means think clearly. Exercise some self-control. See, Jesus, Jesus understood. Jesus knew what his disciples were feeling. He knew they were confused. He knew they were getting all bent out of shape. He knew things were getting really messy for them. But he also knew that within a few short hours, things would be even messier. As they saw the one they loved arrested and crucified, life was about to get a whole lot messier. So what he's telling them is, guys, you don't have to let your circumstances ruin you. You don't have to become swallowed up. You don't have to be overwhelmed. Let not your hearts be troubled. Now, this week I, I visited a website. It's a website for the Anxiety and Depression Association of America. And one of the statistics on their websites reports this that anxiety dis disorders in the, the United States are the, the greatest. Um, having the greatest impact of all mental illnesses on our population. Uh, they estimate that about a little over 18% of Americans, about 40 million adults, battle with this kind of anxiety and depression every year, which tells me that we're not managing the mess, that the mess is managing us. Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled. Now, I don't think that Christians should be unrealistic people. I think we should be realists. I don't think we should be idealists. I don't think we should be pessimists. I think we should be realists. See, idealists look at, you know, every situation, and they think everything's supposed to be perfect. They kind of live in a make-believe world. And by the way, sometimes idealists can be dangerous because when life doesn't go according to their plans, they usually fold, man. They, they give up really quickly. On the other side are pessimists. They're, they're negative. You know, everything's always bad. The, wor the world is really, really bad. You know, Satan is everywhere. He's hiding under every rock. He's hiding under this music stand. He's hiding under the keyboard. They're, you know, they're always trying to bind something. Everything's bad, you know. M most, most of us, you know, we go into Krispy Kreme and we see donuts. Pessimists only see holes, 
That's, see, you, you know people like that. We're, we're supposed to be realistic. We're supposed to look at the world and say, I get it. This world is broken. It is a mess. It's fallen. It's sin scarred. But there is a God and he has answers and he has resources that he makes available to his children. So I'm going to deal with the mess that way, turning, turning to that God. And Jesus is say, look, guys, I know you're troubled. I, I get that. But you can get a grip, so please get a grip. See, that's realistic. Now, while there are many reasons to be troubled in this world, there are also many reasons that Jesus is going to give us in this passage to not be troubled. I want to consider a couple of those. And that brings us to the second principle, uh, and it's this. In Jesus, harried hearts can find a cure. And that's what I love about Jesus. He doesn't just say, okay, you stop that. He, he tells us why. He gives us a reason for why we should stop this. I don't know if any of you remember Bobby McFerrin and that song that just gets caught in your brain when you start singing it from the late 80s. It was very popular, you know, and there's a line in there that goes like this. In every life there is some trouble. When you worry, you make it double. Don't worry. Sing it with me. Be happy. Yeah, you, you, you know it. Okay, now you're stuck with that the rest of the day, I know. It's a catchy tune. I, I love the song. that we, we, we fell in love with the song. But here's the deal about the song. It frustrated me a little bit because Bobby never told me why I shouldn't worry. He just said, don't do it. You know, one of the worst things you can do for somebody who is suffering and lingering in, in that, that kind of struggle is just walk up to them and slap them on the back and say, don't worry, be happy. But... If you can give someone a tangible reason, why not? Why, why they shouldn't worry, a, a reason that makes sense, that can change things. So here's a question that I have for you. How does what you believe affect your life when you're in the mess? Does, does your faith make a difference? Does it matter? See, one of the things you can always tell about a person's faith is, is what it's like is when they find themselves in a mess. What they, what they really believe starts to come to the surface. Now, when things are good, it's, it's one thing. But when things are bad, often what they really believe gives rise, finds a way. And that's not just true of individuals. It's also true of the church. A.W. Tozer, in his great work, The Knowledge of the Holy, he writes this. He says, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the, the most portentous fact about any man is not what he at a given time may say or do, but what he in his heart, deep heart, conceives God to be like. We tend by a secret law of the soul to move towards our mental image of God. We just move towards what we think God is like. This is true not only of individual Christians, but of the company of Christians that compose the church. Always the most revealing thing about the church is her idea of God. Just as her most significant message is what she says about him or what she leaves unsaid. For her silence is often more eloquent than her speech. She can never escape 
the self-disclosure of her witness concerning God. See, what we think about God, what we believe about God as individuals and as a church matters more than anything else. So what do you think about God in the mess? How are we to think about God in the mess? Well, we'll find it here in God's word today. Because first of all, when you're facing a mess, you need to think two things. You need to think who you know and where you'll go. I just want to encourage you to always filter your troubles through those two things, who you know and where you'll go. See, that's what Jesus is saying in verse, verse 1 when he says, let not your hearts be troubled. Here's the first reason why you don't have to. Believe in God, also in me. Believe. Another way to say it would be, you trust God, trust me. See, Jesus knows that these God-following, the, the, these men, these disciples, that they were heading into the ultimate trial of their lives. They were going to watch the one they love suffer incredibly and die. And he says to them in a time like this, you need to think back to who you know. You believe God, you trusted him? Trust me now. Now, I want you to think about these disciples. They, they had pretty much every reason to, to trust Jesus. They had been with him for three or so years, you know, they were there in Galilee. Thousands of people got fed with food when there was really no food. Who was it that multiplied all the bread that day? We looked at that last week. It wasn't them. It was Jesus. Who was it that, that, that calmed the storm on, on the sea one night, delivering them to safety? It wasn't them. It was Jesus. Who was it that at a funeral for a friend raised this dead guy named Lazarus, gave him back to his family? It was Jesus. See, they had seen all of this. They had been with him. And he's now he's saying, you trust God, trust me. You have every reason to trust him. But see, at that point in the upper room, here's what the disciples did not have. They did not have the big picture. Think about this with me for just a second. Now, you and I today actually have more reasons than the disciples did to trust Jesus. See, they were on the other side of the cross. They were on the other side of the resurrection in the upper room that night. They didn't have the big picture. I don't know if you've ever thought about it that way. See, in the upper room that night, the disciples did not understand that crucifixion was going to mean salvation for the whole world, being offered to the world. We understand that. But that night, the disciples didn't understand that the cross would be followed by a resurrection where Jesus would conquer death and offer hope to the whole world. They, they didn't get that, but we do. So here we are, you, you and I. We're, we're on the other side of the cross. We're on the other side of the resurrection. We get the big picture. They didn't get that. And it's, it, it's easy for us, you know, to if we could step into that upper room that night, knowing what we know, to say, hey, John, hey, Pete, hey, boys, Get a grip. Don't let your hearts be troubled. But for a moment, if you would, think about, think about your life right now. Think about what you're facing, whatever mess you find yourself in. And here's the truth. You don't have the big picture beyond this moment. 
You, you can't see around the corner, but God does. You can't, but God does. And so our natural instinct would not be to say, oh, I know God, I know Christ, he's trustworthy, I, it's all going to be okay. Our instinct, our fleshly instinct is to be more like that, you know, that guy that was um, walking along the edge of the Grand Canyon and slipped off the side. And as he was falling, he, he, he kind of got tangled up in a, in a bush on the side of the cliff and he was clinging to it desperately just for life. And he finally kind of got stabilized for a second. He starts looking up, hollering, is anybody up there? And then suddenly a voice, a booming voice says, yes, I'm here. And he says, could, could you save me? And the voice says, yes, I, I can save you. And he, he says, well, please, please do. And then the voice said, do you believe that I can save? And the guy says, I believe, I believe. Do you have faith? I, I got faith. I got, I got lots of faith. Then let go. And there was a moment of silence. And the man looked back up and hollered out again. Can anybody else help me? Now that's an old story that's been told many times. But it's so true that our faith is, is so, much, so much like that. You know, there comes a point in, in our mess when we have to let go. We have to really trust God's word. God's word like we find in, in Romans 8, 28 that tells us that we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. That's God's way of saying to us, let go. And so often what we say, is anybody else out there? See, one of the things that trust does, trusting God stops tension. Faith is what fades our fears away. Worship is what wipes out our, our worry. So, so what's the cure for harried hearts, what, what's the cure? First of all, you think about who you know. Do you believe God? Do you have a personal relationship with him through his son, Jesus? If you do, then the second thing that you need to think on is where you'll go. Jesus said, in my father's house. It's interesting to me that Jesus immediately begins segueing their thoughts, knowing they're troubled. He begins moving their thoughts to heaven. And he says, in my father's house are, are many mansions here in verse 2. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? If, if it wasn't true, would I have said that? Now, the term my father's house, what is Jesus speaking of? Well, I, I'm convinced it's heaven. It's a, it's a metaphor for heaven. Uh, the, the Bible itself speaks of heaven over 500 times. Now, it, it gives heaven different names. Sometimes, like in Hebrews 11, it's called a country. It calls it a better country that, that is a heavenly one. Uh, later, in, in Hebrews chapter 12, uh, it's spoken of as a, as a city, the, the holy city of Jerusalem. Sometimes heaven gets referred to as the kingdom of, of God because God's a king. He's reigning over everything. Sometimes it's called paradise because it's going to be indescribably beautiful. Sometimes it's called a, a place of rest because it'll be the end of all of our toil and no more tribulation and temptation. 
But here Jesus calls it my father's house. And according to Jesus, heaven is not imaginary. It's, it's real. It's a, it's a place. It's, heaven is not a metaphor. It's a real place. It has locality. It has dimensionality. It has physicality. The Bible speaks of heaven in incredible ways. If you've never read the book by Randy Alcorn about heaven, I would just strongly encourage you to do that. But let's, let's look at verse 2. Let's unpack it just a little bit deeper. Jesus said this, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? First of all, I want you to notice that there are many rooms. Some variety here, many rooms. The, the word for room is monet. And it, it, it means an abiding place. It means a place of rest, a, 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 an abiding place. And here's the point that Jesus is making. you, you got to kind of get your mind into the Middle Eastern culture of Jesus' day. In those days, a family would grow, and so a child would grow up and, and, and get married. And one of the things that that Jewish family would do, they would just add on to the house. They'd add a, another room on the house. And then when kids came along, that, they'd add another room on for the kids. They'd just keep adding rooms. They, 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 they would never run out of rooms. As the family grew, so too did the home. So Jesus points out that there's, in his father's house, there's many rooms. Now, I want to fast forward for a minute and just, you know, throw another thought in your mind. From God's word, we know that those who are in Christ, that when we, when we leave this place, we go immediately to be with the father. We, we immediately go there. But then one day, the scripture tells us that we're coming back and that God is going to create a new heaven and a new earth. It's all going to be brand new, and he's going to create a new Jerusalem. And the, uh, the Apostle John writes about that in Revelation chapter 21. It describes this heavenly city, the new Jerusalem. And when you read uh, in verse 16, it tells us that its height and length and width are each 1,400 miles. So it's this, this cubical city coming down out of heaven. Uh, a professor of engineering he was a professor of engineering at both uh, University of Rice and Virginia Tech. He wrote a book called The Revelation Record. His name is uh, Dr. Henry Morris. And in his book, Dr. Henry Morris does some calculations. And he calculates that that heavenly city, that 1,400-mile cube, could easily, uh, there over 20 billion people could inhabit that, that space, just, just that space, just that, that, that city. And each person there could have about a 70-acre, 70, 75-acre room or space or a dwelling place. Now, here's what I, I don't want you to think about. I, I mean, I know Jesus said, I'm, I, I'm in my Father's house and I'm, there are many rooms and I'm, I'm going to you know, go, go make a, a place for you. And that, that gives us some idea that it's personal. And sometimes, you know, we think, well, maybe Jesus is up there and maybe he's now a custom builder because he was in construction, you know, when he was here on earth. And he's had 2,000 years. So sometimes our mind can start to maybe trail off thinking, well, Jesus is up in heaven arranging furniture the way I like it. You know, and Jesus, Jesus is probably there maybe right now hanging wallpaper that I, I, I would like. Okay. I don't know what Jesus is doing specifically, but he's there preparing a wonderful place. But I want you to think on that night when Jesus was giving this to his disciples, and he says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. 
what would he be doing the next couple of days? Well, he'd be dying on the cross to prepare a way for them to come to heaven because they couldn't get there otherwise. He was going to be raised from the dead so that they could overcome death. He says, I'm going to the cross. I'm going to make my sacrifice as a way to prepare a way for you into heaven. So let me ask you just a question. If Jesus Christ is able to do that, to make a way for an unholy, unrighteous person like me and like you to be made righteous enough to be in the presence of God in, in heaven, how much more so could he take care of life in this, in this mess? Just, just think about this. When you find yourself in a mess, think about who you know if you're in Christ. You're, you're a child of God. And think about where you'll go. You're going to go to be with him. Something else about heaven in verse 2 that's important is that it's a place of relationship. Jesus calls it my father's house. See, heaven is not as much about location as it is relation. Heaven is a relationship. That's why heaven in the truest sense of the word is your home. Because that's where your father is. And that's where your savior is. And, 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 and they'll be there all the time. Those who trusted Christ, who have, who have passed from this life, are, are there. And here's some really cool info if you've never heard this. Paul, in 1 Thessalonians, writing to some Christians who had questions uh, about kind of what all this means, told them this. He says, when Jesus returns, that God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep, those who have already passed from this life, and that there's going to be this great reunion of great relationships so you and I, when we're in a mess, we need to think about who we know and where we'll go. Verse 3 also focuses on, on what's ahead. Jesus said, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. Friends, that is the blessed hope of the people of God. Yes, some people that we love will die. That's how they'll make it to heaven. Other believers, when the Lord returns, will join him. If he were to come today, those of us who are in Christ would, would join him. So whether we get there, by the way, uh, David tells us in Psalm 23, whether we get there through the valley of the shadow of death, or whether we get there the way that Paul tells us uh, when he writes to the church at Corinth about what's going to happen when Jesus returns. In a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, the last trumpet, the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and those who will remain will be changed. See, if you're in Christ, you're going to get there. Here are the last two verses and kind of the final principle as we head to closing this. And it's this. Harried hearts can find clarity. And I want you to think about just the incredible truth here that Jesus has shared with his disciples in the upper room. It's really profound. And then he says to them, and you know the way to where I'm going. You know why he said that? Because Jesus had over and over and over again told them that he was going to be returning to his father. That he, he would be returning to, to heaven where he came from. He had made it very plain to them. And they should have known. 
But there's this one honest disciple in the midst of this. I love this guy. He was just vulnerably honest. Now, he was probably, you know, a little socially awkward, maybe ill-timed in in the way he came at things. But the dude was honest. And look what he says in verse 5. Thomas just kind of blurts out, Lord, we do. I mean, he's, he's arguing with you. Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? And you just got to love that. You know, I, I just imagine when Jesus was saying, and you know the way to where I'm going, I can see all the disciples saying, yeah, uh-huh, yeah, we got it, we know where. Thomas says, no, we don't know the way. I don't know how to get there. Where are you going, Jesus? How can we know the way to get there if we don't even know where you're going? How are we going to do that, Jesus? Friends, when, when you're in a mess... One of the things that's so true is you can get so preoccupied with how you feel in the mess that everything else falls away. And it quickly becomes all about your emotions and your struggles. And you get distracted from what Jesus has already told you. Jesus had on multiple occasions plainly told the disciples. But in this moment, Thomas still doesn't get it. See, when you're you're in a mess... One of the things that's important to do is, it's, is to be honest and clarify what it is you believe. Do I believe this stuff? Do I, do I believe the words of this book? Do I believe that God is good? Do I believe that there is life after this life? And all of those questions need to be formed, uh, asked, forged, and, and clarified in times when life is a mess, because life gets real confusing in the middle of the mess. And that's one of the reasons I am so thankful for this great apostle, Thomas. I'm I'm thankful that he interrupted Jesus, because if he hadn't, we might not have that great answer that Jesus gives, that we can build our life on. Jesus said to Thomas, verse 6, I am the way the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. For instead of, those are powerful words from Jesus. They're, they're unmistakably clear. He says, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. Sometimes I wonder how many people who say they follow Jesus, truly believe this. Because when you, when you hear it, it sounds very narrow, very exclusive, very dogmatic. See, Jesus doesn't, didn't say, I am a way. He didn't say, hey, hang out with me and I'll show you the way. He didn't say, I, can, I got this path that I know about and you know I'll, I'll point you to it. Jesus says, I'm it. Now, I, I've, heard, I've heard people say, well, that's just your interpretation. I don't know how else it could be understood. And this isn't the only place where Jesus makes this kind of statement that excludes. And we don't always like to hear that. I want, but I want you to listen to a couple of other statements that Jesus himself makes. Jesus in Matthew chapter 7 The great sermon on the mount, greatest sermon ever delivered. 
And Jesus is teaching on life in God's kingdom, and he says this, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Now, there were a lot of people listening that day on the side of that that mountain on the Sea of Galilee. One of those listening was the Apostle Peter. And you know who else was listening that that night in the upper room? Peter would be listening. And and Peter would be confused as, as he saw Jesus die. Peter was confused when he denied Jesus. But when Christ was raised from the dead... Everything Jesus said would finally line up in, Jesus, in, in Peter's mind. Clarity would break through all the confusion. And Peter would say these words just a short time after Jesus had been raised in Acts chapter 4. Peter says, there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now, there are many, many more verses that I could take you to, many verses that eliminate any other way to heaven but through Jesus. It's not through good works. It's not by ceremony or religion. And those verses are just as dogmatically exclusive. Jesus says this is the only way. And I hope you notice, if you read the Gospels, you'll see Jesus never apologizes for his dogmatic exclusive statements. Friends, I I want you to think about this about truth by its very nature truth is exclusive and dogmatic you know every math teacher I ever had always insisted that two plus two always had to be four always you know did you ever wonder why couldn't it be five or like 4.3 or something it just they always insisted it had to be four you know you, you could write another answer but then you you know fail the test so we'd have to say that math teachers are all just, you know, exclusive and, and narrow-minded. You know how, who else I think of is narrow-minded and, and very exclusive, dogmatic? Your mortgage company. They're really dogmatic and narrow-minded about how much you owe them. Friends, here the, here's the deal. Truth is truth. Heaven is a real place. Having, heaven is a love, loving place. It's a relational place. But heaven is also an exclusive place. And so here's the question you've got to ask yourself. Do you know the one who prepared heaven for his own? Because if you know him, you can know where you're going. And that will help you manage life in the mess. And it can bring healing to your harried heart. But if you don't know him, if you refuse to know him, then I've got bad news for you because it's it's only going to get messier for you. Friends, one of the ways that you can know that you know him so you don't live with doubt is you grow in loving what he said is true. You start growing to love what's in this book, the book that's true, the book about life as Jesus told us. See, things, for instance, like life begins at conception. This book tells us 
that God knits every human being in their mother's womb. That's what God says he does. That he's created everybody in his image for his pleasure. And every life, born, old, teenaged, or preborn, all of it matters to him. And here's what happens. If you won't trust a truth like that, you'll find yourself filled with other doubts because that's what Satan does. He starts eroding little pieces of the truth of God's word in your mind till eventually he gets to your own relationship with God and you begin to doubt your own salvation. But when you settle it that Jesus is the only way, Jesus is all of God's truth, and in him and him alone is life, and you put your trust in him, to be your way to God, to be your exclusive truth in this life and in the life to come, your heart will no longer be as harried. You'll still have trouble around you. You'll still be living with a mess. But you will find peace. And your heart will no longer have to be troubled. So what are you doing with Jesus? Do you know him? Are you certain of where you're going to go after this life? Let's pray together. Father, we come in Jesus' precious name. We come, Lord, kind of as we began our time together today, thinking about your goodness, thinking about who you are, thinking about how we need you in the midst of this mess. And so if you're watching this, if you're in the sound of my voice, I just want to ask you, do you know him? Do you know the way, the truth, and the life? The one who was sent by God to give you his way, his truth to give you life in him. Jesus says no one comes to God the Father except through him. Have you come to Jesus? Have you trusted Christ with your life? And if you have, are you trusting him with today? Are you trusting in his word, the book of life that God has given so that you can live this life in the middle of the mess to its fullest. Is Jesus your truth? Do you believe his word, all of his word? Or do you pick and choose? Because if you do, it will continue to erode your soul. Trust him. Renew your trust this day. Jesus, we come. We, we come now to surrender again. We come now to appoint a time in, in this moment, this, this time of worship, saying, Lord, there are some places that I have been not trusting in, in your word, not trusting in what you say is truth, but I choose this day to restore my trust in all that you have said. And maybe for the first time today, you're trusting that he said there's no way for you to come to the Father but through Him. And for the first time, it struck your soul and you want to cry out to God and say, God, save me. 
you got to let go. You got to let go of what you want to believe to be true because of this world, and you've got to trust God. You got to let go. You got to let go of your sin. You got to let go of trying to be your own king of your own kingdom. You got to let, let God be king. The Bible says when you call upon the name of the Lord, with that as your context, He will save you. Even in this mess, He will save you. He will give you strength. He'll give you courage. He'll give you certainty and confidence. God, we come. We come to surrender again. We come to surrender for the first time as we come to worship you. We surrender ourselves now, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.